We're in that classic Christmas book, Philippians. Chapter 3, hoping to get through all the way through verse 14. We are only a few days, just a few days away from the biggest, grandest Jewish holiday in the Jewish festival year. Am I talking about Hanukkah? Nope. Would it surprise you if I were to assert that Christmas is an entirely Jewish celebration? If a person claiming to be Jewish had a biblical understanding of their Judaism, they would never get worked up about someone wishing them a Merry Christmas, and they would totally understand that the celebration and the observance of Hanukkah is not a replacement or an alternative holiday celebration for Christmas, but is in addition to the celebration of Hanukkah and, in fact, should be the apex of the festival Jewish year. It shouldn't surprise us that a people of Jewish faith are no different than people of the Christian faith. At least when it comes to a lack of understanding or a misunderstanding concerning what it is that they are supposed to believe. Take the Apostle Paul, who was himself a Jew. Paul is about to tackle this issue with the Philippian believers, and it's not the first time that he does so. The question of who is a true Jew and who is a poser is a major issue for the Apostle, and he addresses it in his letters to the churches at Galatians at Galatia, at Ephesus, at Philippi, at Colossae, and at Rome, and at Corinth. This is what he's alluding to when he opens the third chapter of our book this morning, writing to the church at Philippi, saying to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. And why would the beliefs of the Jews be such an issue to the Christians of the day of the aforementioned churches, such that Paul is compelled by the Holy Spirit of God to bring it up repeatedly? Think of it in the terms of our day, where there has been a perverse commingling of many different elements of many different belief systems, yet over time have all been bundled together under this broad, sweeping thing called Christianity. I can't tell you how many times over the years I have been asked why there are so many different Christian religions, which is the way the question is normally phrased. Well, there aren't, but it sure seems like there are. Because the myriad of churches today that wear the name Christian but bear little or no resemblance to the faith described in the Christian manual called the Bible. Go figure. Let me give you an example, a compelling example. Probably a worst case scenario even in our day. I go back to 1993. 
There was a conference that took place, I believe it was in Philadelphia, it doesn't matter, involving Lutherans. Now you have to qualify all of these because there's many different, if you want to call this, denominations of Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, and everything else. Some are Bible-believing, some are anything but. This one happened to be participated in by Lutherans of the ironically named Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and the United Church of Christ. There were many Catholics that participated in this conference, and it was sponsored primarily by the Presbyterian Church USA. You'll always see that in parentheses, not to be confused with the Presbyterian Church of America, which is very Bible-believing, and the Pres USA, which again is a worst-case scenario. This conference was sponsored by the Pres USA and the United Methodist Church. It was billed as a global theological conference. What it was was possibly the most blasphemous attempt in history at redefining Christianity. Dolores Williams, professor at Union Theological Seminary, lectured, quoting her, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I think Jesus came for life and to show us something about life. I don't think, listen to this now. This is a theologian, a teacher of graduate level Christians. I don't think we need folks hanging around on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. Another presenter Lesbian feminist Virginia Mollencott lectured that, quoting, Jesus' death was the ultimate in child abuse and a model for human child abuse. As an incest survivor, she continued, I can no longer worship in a theological context that depicts God as an abusive parent and Jesus as the obedient, trusting child. And this was 21 years ago. I assure you, things have not improved. One little uh, illustration of that. A whole host of Christian denominations today advertise. They view it as one of their their great accomplishments, one of their their, uh, uh, bulwarks of what they believe and what they're all about. Advertise themselves as being what is called an ONA church. You can see this right on their church marquees or in their bulletins. ONA means open and affirming. You can see this on the sign right here in town on the Congregational Church on Eustis Parkway, right in the lower right-hand corner, ONA. Open means the church welcomes everyone regardless of the particular lifestyle sins to which they are committed. This is not merely a good trait for a church. It is a necessary trait for a biblical church. Oh, did I throw you on that one? <laughs> That's right. You didn't, I didn't misstate that, and you didn't mishear me. It's a necessary trait for a biblical church. We could easily here at Faith EFC put an O down in the corner of our marquee and absolutely mean it. The church of Jesus Christ should welcome everyone, as we do here, regardless of where they are on their spiritual journey. 
in case you didn't notice this morning, well, at least if you came in the main entrance here, we don't have a sin detector. Yeah. Woo. We don't flag people walking in here with sins to which they are clinging. If we did, this place would be empty. And if at this moment you just happen to be thinking, well, that's not true of me, the sin detector just went crazy. The needle pointing to self-deception and pride. The church's very mission is to seek and to save those who are lost. Meaning, those who don't even know yet that there is a standard of cleanliness. The gospel of Jesus, hear this plainly, never says, clean yourselves up before coming to me for help. Hmm. That's because we cannot clean ourselves up. We need the supernatural wonder-working power of the Holy Spirit within us. And that only comes when we finally throw our sin-laden selves on the mercies of the Lord. Every Christ-honoring, every Bible-believing church needs to be an open church. But, a biblical church... Christian church will not, should not, must not affirm anyone's sins, helping them to embrace them, helping them to love them, encouraging them to make their sin a regular part of their lifestyle and still profess to be a follower of Jesus. John wrote in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, Do not love the world nor the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. This is why the words repent and repentance occur just about 50 times in the New Testament, and that's not even counting the Old Testament. In an ONA church, in an open and affirming church, the only sin they seem to be willing to label as sin is calling anything else sin. No wonder people then wonder why all the different Christian religions... So the reason Paul is exercised about warning the Philippians again about those he calls here the false circumcision is that they were the equivalent of the wayward church of our day, believing and teaching what Paul calls another gospel, a different gospel, a perversion of the true gospel, the good news. And Paul says here something that is quite startling to both Jew and Gentile, that's I think most of us in here, maybe all of us in here, means non-Jew. It's quite startling to Jew and Gentile alike. In verse 3, he writes that he and the Philippian followers of Jesus were the real Jews, the true 
circumcision, worshiping God for his generous offer of salvation by completely taking care of the way to heaven. Not because of the religionist faithful devotion to a system of rules, rituals, and regulations, but in fact, in spite of them. In other words, the very religious Jews called Pharisees are labeled by Paul as the false circumcision and are the equivalent of the false Christians of our day. All right, if you're a little topsy-turvy there, for just stay with me for a few minutes. I titled this message, Christmas is a Jewish Holiday. So first, a crash course, and I mean a crash course, on the history of Judaism. The only hope of heaven for anyone is to live a life of perfection. Notice I didn't say is to live life to the best of their ability. Not good enough. The only hope of heaven is to live our individual respective lives with absolute meticulous, spotless, unblemished perfection. But as we all know, or I think all know, Adam and Eve sinned, and when they sinned, heaven was forfeited. Once sin entered the world, there was no hope of heaven since sin became an inherited trait. That inherited trait of sin disqualified everybody in the human race from that point on. So now enter a religious system designed by God himself to the people he would call Israel. This system of devotion, of religion designed by God, would consist of incessant sacrifices and arduous regulations and unbending rules. Every sacrifice and every rule was designed by God to instruct His people how desperately and hopelessly sinful they were and how utterly lost they were and in need of a Savior. At the same time, in that place of desperation, they were to find real hope and confidence that one day the Messiah would come to fix the now broken relationship between God and man once for all time, securing reconciliation and with that the certainty of eternal life to all would receive that reconciliation as a gift. What happened? Those who understood their own wretchedness clung to the hope of the coming Messiah, Redeemer, Savior. And they lived their lives. We're talking now back, back, back thousands of years in the Old Testament. They lived their lives now in view of that with grateful faithfulness to Jehovah God, looking forward to the day when Yeshua, Ha, Mashiach, would finally come, Jesus, the Messiah. But until that day, though, great pains would have to be taken in order to keep at bay God's righteous anger against sin. God has never stopped hating 
sin. One of the worst errors, and I don't think, I had to, I had to check myself on this and just think through this a little bit. I don't think I'm overstating it, but one of the worst errors of doctrine in church history has been its misleading the multitudes that sin is suddenly irrelevant to the God of the New Testament because of the cross. Paul writes to the church at Rome in chapter 1, verse 18, in the New Testament, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That was after the cross. So let me condense this down. One of the unique rituals God commanded the Jews to observe in fulfilling God's laws was that of circumcision, which ironically became a focal point of spiritual pride. If you don't know what circumcision is, ask somebody else. <laughs> I mean, it's no skin off my nose, but you need to... Whoa! Ow! How does that become a... a, a yeah. <laughs> Let's just say amen, close in prayer. How does that become a, a, a focal point of spiritual pride? I mean, never mind. I just... I, <laughs> Nevertheless, it was their mark of distinction of being God's favored ones. And like many New New Testament Christians today, they put their trust in their performance in looking religious, in looking spiritual, in looking like God's favored ones. Their meticulous adherence to the laws of God pertaining to all those things that God designed in the system became their assurance for God liking them, if I can put it so crassly. But the writer of the New Testament book called Hebrews explains the purposes of the system of, this, of these rituals that God himself designed. He writes in chapter 10, The law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. I hear the rest of it. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I remember what I said. The religious system God designed was entirely to point to the people's utter inability to appease God's demand for perfection, thus driving them to that Messiah, that Savior. This system of sacrifices and rules for holy living are collectively what we call Judaism. And it was only ever, it was only ever intended to accomplish basically two things. First, it was to remind them of how inadequate everyone is to be good enough to merit God's favor. 
It wasn't meant to be a substitute. It was meant to remind them, look, you're losers. You can't live up to the holy standards of God in perfection. The second thing it was to accomplish is to be a reminder. Uh, That reminder was intended to heighten their desperation because of their inadequacy, driving them not away from God, but to God, falling on His merciful consideration. The faithful Jews, the faithful ones, called the Chesedim in the Hebrew, who understood this, and who placed their hope in the coming Messiah, Redeemer, Savior, were few in number. And they are repeatedly called the remnant in the Old Testament. In today's context, we would liken the remnant to today's true Christians. The rest of the Jews who outnumbered the faithful remnant were still very religious, very devout in doing those things that God had meant for for it to remind them of how inadequate they were. That became their adequacy. They were still very religious and very lost. Instead of falling on God's grace in the promise of the foreseen, the foretold, the coming Messiah, they prided themselves on their meticulous attention to detail in the ritual observances of Judaism and prided themselves in possessing a knowledge of all the forms and the laws of God. Not only did they miss the entire point of the sacrificial system, but they loved nothing more than to let others know how stellar they were and to show off their religiosity, convinced they were superior to everyone else. They failed to comprehend their need for the Savior who was promised to come supernaturally by way of the Incarnation, thereby passing the sin gene up which was passed down from Adam and Eve. Coming into the world as fully God and yet as fully man, the promised Messiah would be the only hope for mankind having come into the world without inherited sin. So now, if the Messiah could live his life sinlessly, he would fulfill the holiness laws of the Father, satisfying God's inherent demand for perfection, eliminating the need for all those arduous sacrifices and rituals. This would take care of part of man's sin problem. There was still yet another piece unresolved. That peace unresolved, which had to be satisfied, was the mandatory sentence of death, meaning physical and spiritual death. Romans 6.23 to the church at Rome, Paul writes, in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. Messiah would take care of this 
by shedding his own blood, dying on a cross in payment of the death sentence leveled against sin. Because of Messiah, the Father would once for all time be satisfied with mankind. The false circumcision didn't get this. Beware of them, Paul warns. They're posers, for they worship themselves rather than God. And their conviction was grounded in their very heritage as Jewish people, who by virtue of their genetic makeup, their national origin, and above all, their outward show of goodness, they claimed God's favor. Yet again in Titus, in the New Testament, chapter 3, verse 5, we find it written, not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to His mercies He saved us. In classic Pauline fashion, Paul instructs the Philippians from a logical place of argumentation. Remember that Paul's point is only ever that Christ, the Messiah, is the only reason anyone has any hope. When the Messiah is born Christmas morning, the Jewish Messiah is the reason for the season. Christmas was the first of three apexes for the faithful Jews called Israel. And now all who fall before the throne of God are more Jewish than the Jews by birth who do not know the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. Paul writes again to the church at Rome in chapter 2, verse 28. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law, and His praise is not from men, but from God. But the party of the circumcision thinks they're all set because of their birth certificate and their resume. And they love making sure that everyone knew their resume. Well, Paul tends to get a little wound up now and again, writing under, still under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's allowed to let his humanity comes out, and he goes off here a little bit. Paul decides, you want to play the resume game, the birth certificate game? I can play that game too. And he resorts to this to show both the Philippian believers and anyone else of the false circumcision who may happen to come to know about all this, to show them the absurdity of such a foundation. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, well, I'll tell you something, I have far more reason to have confidence in the flesh. Why? I was circumcised on the eighth day. You want to boast about your circumcision? I'll boast about mine, nanny nanny. That's a marginal reading. Of the nation of Israel, I was of the tribe of Ben-Yamin, the son of Yamin, Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You call yourself Jewish? I'm Jewish, Jewish, Jewish three times over. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Paul was a member of the Pharisees. 
He knows all about them. That's why he's so passionately riled against them. He knows exactly where they're coming from. He used to be one of them. And he says, and you want to just talk about human zeal? I myself was a persecutor of the church. Meaning, I was so fired up for God Almighty that I was willing to cast the votes for the death sentence against who I thought were those posers called the Christians. You want to talk about zeal? As to the righteousness which is in the law, like all good Pharisees, found blameless. You want to go down the list? I'm telling you, I'm blameless. This is Paul writing and saying, so you want to compare resumes and birth certificates? I've got you all beat. Paul says that if they want to play that game of personal accomplishment and the game of accolades and genealogy and life experience, He's far and away above them. But then the other shoe drops when Paul writes in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, referring to what the list he just went through, all his religious accommodations, accommodations, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul knew that he could never live up to God's impossible standard of perfection. And this isn't just a New Testament concept. This was always the concept from the beginning. And the false circumcision, if anyone would know this, they did. Because they did know the Scriptures, which was the Torah. They did know the Old Testament better than anybody. And they let you know that they did. Their premier prophet, if I could call Isaiah that, writes in chapter 64, and actually he writes in numerous places, the same ideas over and over. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The translators have cleaned that up. Do you know what that means, filthy garment here? We have snow on the ground right now. I'm pretty careful about cleaning up after my dog outside for practical reasons. In the snow, it's a little more difficult. I found this out two days ago. That's the rubbish that Paul's talking about. It's poop. It is. The editors who have to sell Bibles don't like that. All of our goodness, all our good deeds, all the things that we are going to bring to God. He says, they're poop. (laughs) You can quote me on that. And all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities, that's all our bad stuff, like the wind, take us away. That was way back in the Old Testament. And then you got to think about Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own ways. But the Lord has laid on him. Who? The Messiah. The iniquity of us all. This is not a New Testament concept. Even more than throwing spiritual, theological commendation away that I might bring to the table to bargain with God for His love. Paul notes... Paul notes in verses 8 and 9, he says, even more than that, 
keep the context here, even more than that, referring to even to more than his religious commendations and accolades and all that he has. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but (laughs) rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law and the good deeds and all my my righteousnesses and things that I'm going to bring to God and say, hey, look at how great I am, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. All things, all things, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Let me break this down. This is a sweeping statement about the whole of life and what is really important and actually the only thing that matters for us right now, here in this place. The Holy Spirit is standing us up straight. If you were in the military... I would say, right now the Holy Spirit is locking our heels. You know what that means. If my career is getting in the way of my pursuit of the living God, I must pursue another career. Don't argue with me. Argue with the Scriptures. We had friends way back, quite a while. We were very young Christians. Obviously, the fact that I remember it, it spoke volumes to me. He was what I truly would call a godly man. He was working for NCR, National Cash Register, big national corporation, actually worldwide corporation, working his way up the career ladder with great success, which was taking him virtually out of town and out of the country, like constantly, with three little children in tow. And I remember talking about his dilemma and realizing he was going to have to resign. He was going to have to count that career ladder rise and all that goes with it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. If my... Are you wearing steel-toed shoes this morning? Good, okay. Whether you're not around. If my toys are robbing God of His time, if my lifestyle or pursuit of a certain lifestyle is getting in the way of being useful to God, I will throw it in the dumpster. If, oh, really get ready now. Security, just wherever you are, I want you to just be ready. If my children or their pursuits or my grandchildren or my family and their pursuits are keeping me from growing in the love and knowledge and service of my Lord and Savior, I must make 
changes. Remembering what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. My entire, say my entire life, from earliest memories, at least through college, was to be a doctor. Shoveled snow in junior high to buy a stethoscope and a blood pressure cuff. And when push finally came to shove, I had to make a decision. Would I be able to be the kind of doctor that I know I would have to be just by my temperament and everything else and the kind of husband and father in the name of Christ that I want to be? And that was my sole decision for walking away what was a virtual promise of entrance to medical school. This is real life. This is reality. I share with you my failings routinely, and they are many. But I've got a few successes along the way. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, I count everything else rubbish. Why? So that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, Paul writes, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The circumcision party had a choice just like everybody else in human history. Go to God and produce your list of why you should let me in your heaven. But their hallowed prophet Isaiah says all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That was one choice. The other choice, like the Apostle Paul and real Christians the world over through the ages, they understood and understand that there was nothing they could ever present to God to gain his eternal favor except God's own righteousness, which he was willing to give to all who would receive it. Paul said, I am soiled with sin that pollutes even the good things that I do. And that simply is not good enough for a holy God. So it's God's gift of his own perfection and God's gift of taking the death penalty for my sins as well. Only when I trash everything I think is worthy of God's favor for the only thing that is worthy of his favor, then do I enter the promise of heaven. Paul willingly counted all his human accomplishments, 
all of his gifts, all of his talents, all of his skills, his good deeds, all of his excellent thoughts and all of his great motives to be fit for the dumpster. If that is what it takes so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Heavy, heavy, heavy theology here. Joyful, joyful, joyful theology here. If you make that right, choice. Let me uh, finish this way. One week ago, Barbara and I were standing in a mega church in Minneapolis. I'm not sure what their auditorium sat, but as I was sitting in there, we were up on the second level. There was still a third level above us, and then, of course, the huge floor. I was trying to picture our auditorium and how it would, you know, fit, or how many, I mean, would fit inside of this thing. It was big. It was just big, okay? And we had, this was Sunday. A week ago, Saturday, the day before this, we were at the Mall of America. I love the Mall of America. I do. I'm a mall rat. But if there is a symbol of North American avarice and greed, (laughs) I can't deny it. It's there. Multi-layers, entire amusement park inside of it. Not just, you know, this brand store and this brand store, but some brand stores have have at least two in the mall itself. I mean, that's how big it is because you may never see the other one. It's hard to see the whole mall and everything. An aquarium underneath the mall. I mean, it's just... So here we are in this place. We were there the whole day. And now, about 12 hours later, we're standing in church. And every song... Every I I got I got kind of got a kick out of it, but it made me feel like rubbish. <laughs> Every song was geared toward the sufficiency of Jesus. Yeah, it was. Meaning Jesus is enough. Oh, Jesus is all I ever need. Oh, worse than you, only Jesus. Jesus is all I want. And I, I was standing there and I was like. Because I'm sitting there, and I'm back at the mall, and I'm here thinking about the sufficiency of Jesus. I don't need anything else but Jesus. And I'm back in the mall of America, and I'm like, I cannot sing this with integrity. And I didn't. I'm a fellow traveler, a pilgrim, on that spiritual journey. As I... Shared with you, I have successes. (laughs) But if that sin detector, if we did have one at that front door, well, I have a key to the back door, so I just, that's okay. There's no room for any kind of pride, there's no room for arrogance. The people out there who are so lost are just that, they are lost. They have no bearings. 
They don't know in the words of Jonah. They don't know their left hand from their right hand. And God understands that, which is why he says, come on, come on. Don't come to me playing games. But if you're coming to me because you are desperate for a new life and a new way and to finally celebrate the Jewish holiday of Christmas the way it is intended, come unto me and I will infuse the Holy Spirit within you and begin an incredible journey. That's the Christmas holiday season. Profoundly Jewish. But as Paul said, we Gentiles who have received the Messiah are now, are now more Jewish than someone with the name of Yitzchak Shalom Rabin. Because it's about circumcision of the heart with true faith that will manifest itself in the glories of God. Let me have you stand. Um, Ben, are you around? Okay. Uh, Ben is around. Just get down and knock him out, would you? No. They're like, what? Do what? Never mind. Push-ups. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, for this gathering today, for the for the ability to come together as a people and worship you, think about you, and talk about you. Pray that we can really focus on you the way you know yourself to be. We can focus on you the way you truly are. Pray for our families. Pray for our church. Pray for this city. For our servicemen and women overseas. I pray for people coming to the second service. They don't fall in the parking lot. <laughs> and we just we thank you for this church. We thank you for your people. Thank you for all the things you do for us for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.